0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine pleasure to have my friend Hamish Knox, who is the 2020 David H. Sandler Award winner. He's a two-times author of Accountability and Change, and also um, a very popular uh, trainer within Sandler, training Sandler franchisees as well as clients. So, Hamish, would you mind giving us a 60-second rundown on your background, please?
1: Thank for having me back, Marcus. I was thinking last time that we got together, I was literally in a janitor's closet because I was doing a speaking engagement, and that was the only space they had available for me. So I'm feeling much more comfortable today. Bless uh, my... Harry <laughs> my background, you encapsulated it very nicely. I am the first David H. Sandler Award winner out of Canada. And the youngest ever, both in terms of age and time in the network. But we're really about supporting our clients professionally and personally at every stage of their business and growth. I'm from a very small village in uh, in the western Canada, and uh, my mom always wanted me to be a teacher. So I guess I made my mom happy, but I also uh, uh, have a lot more freedom than a lot of teachers do. Excellent. Okay, so
0: uh, Hamish, one of the things that I'd like to talk about today is the gilded cage that many entrepreneurs create for themselves.
1: Mm. So does it describe what we mean by that. Well, a lot of entrepreneurs get into a business. They start a business because they want to do the work. You know, They want to coach people or they want to they want to do plumbing or they want to do coding or whatever it might be. And they build a thing and someone says, I'll buy that thing. And then someone else says, I'll buy that thing. And all of a sudden, this entrepreneur is sitting on top of a 10, 20, 40, 50, 100 person organization no idea how they got there, they're working 12 to 20 hours a day, six days a week, because they believe if they stop, the whole thing will fall apart, which it probably would.
0: Which makes them vulnerable to the number 73 bus and unsellable.
1: Very much so. And really, for any entrepreneur, the ultimate goal is to exit the business, whether that is a transition to the children, whether that's a, a sale to private equity or someone else buys the business. But if we're the business, we're unsellable. If you're the business, you don't
0: have a business. What you have is a practice or you bought a job. Totally. Uh, So what's the difference between a practice like that and a business?
1: It's an organization that has a consistent, repeatable, scalable sales engine that's really like I call it interchangeable plastic blocks. There's a company in Denmark that makes them. I don't know that I could actually <laughs> say their name on the podcast. Yeah, uh, why not? Lego, there you go. We're that's done. Lego, there we go, all right. So it's like Lego because one of the biggest fears of any buyer of a business, and I've had this confirmed by several business brokers, people who facilitate business sales, that when the owner or the primary revenue generator goes away, does that sales engine go from an eight-cylinder down to a two-stroke? Now, I'm not a car guy, but I understand really big to really small. And what we want the sales engine to look like is we pop Hamish out, we pop Marcus in, and there's a little blip as as the gears get into place. But then that engine continues to grow and expand just as it was with the previous owner. Okay. So for that to be possible...
0: What kind of systems, processes, and infrastructure need to be in place?
1: Well, it starts with understanding how. who are we going after, number one. We have to have our, our ideal client profiles or our avatars, if more in the B2C space. Who are they? Because until we define that, anybody who we trip over or who falls into our lap is an ideal client. And you and I have worked with plenty of companies and been around long enough to know that that's just not true. And even in a pandemic, all business is not good business. No, there's a lot of dreadful business out there that'll kill you. Totally, totally. So that's number one. We got to we got to define who do we want to go to market to, and then we got to figure out what are what are the challenges that they are facing because we're all commodities in the minds of our prospects. Doesn't matter what we're selling. We're all commodities. And we if we're not differentiating, beginning with our marketing, on how we sell instead of what we sell, we're a commodity. And the only way to differentiate a commodity is on price. That's not the game that uh, anybody really wants to be
0: in. One of the things that I've learned um, over the last year or so came from a really interesting chap called Simon Bowen. And he describes the four levels of salespeople. And they're in a pyramid. So at the bottom, you have the product pusher. Mm -hmm. And what they sell is a pill, so an aspirin. And no one wants to pay a lot of money for that. The next level up is the authority. And LinkedIn and Facebook are heaving with authorities. And people come to them because they want a solution to a problem. The problem with being an authority is that more often than not, you sound like everyone else. So Mm -hmm. you become commoditized. You become a product pusher then you're ending up selling on price. The next level up is the hero seller. And the hero seller, people come to for their strength because Mm. they want to be defended. And you can kind of get away with that for so long. But again, very often, that's not replicable. And the other problem with it is that uh, you're going to rub a lot of people up the wrong way, um, depending. Now, the, the next level up, there's a huge leap and a gap between the hero seller and the sage seller. The sage seller is someone that people come to for their wisdom, and they're hoping that the smarts will rub off. And those people often have a waiting list. They charge premium. But their customers love coming to them because then what they're not doing is pushing product. Now, one of the things that I've seen over the last 35 years, repeatedly, is the frequency with which salespeople come to the table And first of all, they're product-centric. They're worried about their quota. So they tend to be very transactional. And the other thing, and I know that this isn't you, but I've seen this a lot over the last 20, 30 years, is people get fixated on technique instead of the underlying psychology and intent behind it and coming to the sale and meeting the customer where they are uh, with the right intent. Um, so let's just explore that a little bit further. You say that you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell, and I fundamentally agree with you on that. What is it that you believe causes someone to stand out in
1: how they sell? It's by getting to that sage level and and really asking our clients questions or our prospects questions that they hadn't really considered before. You know, one of uh, One of my friends uh, plays a game where he writes G.Q at the top of his notepad, which stands for great question. And he plays a bit of a game as to how many times he can get his prospect to say, that was a great question, or I never thought of that before, or, oh, wow, I hadn't even considered that. Because the moment that our prospect says, oh, wow, that's a great question, or I had never considered that, our credibility goes way up. Because now we are not a pill pusher, we are a sage who is expanding their outlook on the world and the possibilities that they could derive, as opposed to just, I have a thorn in my paw and I want it out. Okay. So again, one of the things
0: that seems, well, actually, there's a series of things that I think make great sellers great. One is they understand that they have never listened their way out of the sale. Fair They ask great questions, but not only do they ask great questions, those questions are fed by the prospect or the customer's response. So they're situationally aware and they're situationally fluid. So again, what are you teaching people about making sure that they are relevant through their listening, through their questioning?
1: One of the things that we do for a lot of our sessions or most of our sessions are built around improv-based role play. Because in improv or improvisation, you have to stay present. Improv is all about active listening and staying present. We can't be thinking about what we said or what we're going to say because we have to listen to what our partner is saying so we can then build the scene from there and make it make it enjoyable for both us and our partner and our audience. So we we do a lot of improv training with our clients for that exact reason, to support them in being actively listening and staying present. The other key component of that, though, is our, all of our prospects have ideas about what it means to be engaged with a salesperson. And whether those are just from their own beliefs or because they watch movies or they've had really bad interactions with amateurs, doesn't matter. But I've actually started telling my prospects and I teach this to my clients as well. Marcus, when I ask you a question, I'm, I'm not looking for a specific answer. I'm looking for an answer. So whatever you say is okay, I'm not looking for you to go in a specific direction because prospects believe that when a salesperson asks a question, they want them to go down a certain path. And the minute that our prospect senses that we're trying to steer them down a certain path, our credibility is completely shocked. So we teach our clients to be, as we say in our room, agnostic to the outcome, which means we're not emotionally attached to the answer. If we want to be emotionally attached to an answer and we want them to go in a certain direction, we need to say, Marcus, are you comfortable going down this path with me? And the it, prospect welcome to say no. It's
0: interesting. I interviewed Michael Brody-Waite for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And one of the four masks uh, that he says hold leaders back. And salespeople must be leaders. People come to mm-hmm. us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. They come to us to help them solve their problems. He says that one of the four masks is surrender to the outcome, not be attached. And attachment is the kiss of death. In fact, the Buddha said it as well. Uh, attachment is the root to all misery. If yes. you're worried about the outcome, if you're worried about them answering in a particular way, then you will find yourself unhappy a lot of the time. Now, let's try and bring this all back to mm-hmm. that gilded cage. Because we've got these entrepreneurs, they've become technicians in Michael Gerber's framework, and they're good at the technical side of their job. They can Mm -hmm. knock together a set of accounts, they Mm -hmm. can plug a leak, whatever it happens to be. And they've been successful more by luck than judgment, perhaps. And they've built up a reputation, but they don't really have an effective funnel. And when you ask them how they build their business, They'll typically say, oh, by referral, our customers love us. At this point, for those of you listening to this uh, podcast, Hamish winced a little bit and it uh, actually leaned back. That gives you a clue because if you're getting referral, but it's a nice surprise every time, it cannot be replicated and it can't be scaled. So let's talk about the funnel because I fundamentally believe that every salesperson's job their number one responsibility is keeping filling and then keeping the top of the funnel full with mm-hmm. quality opportunities. And just a caveat, it is not about the activity, it's about the effectiveness. And I would rather have five good opportunities at the top of the hopper than 300 non-starters. Let's
1: talk about your approach to prospecting. So we, in part of this is, creating full funnel freedom, right? When the funnel is full, we have a lot of freedom and a lot of, we're much more relaxed. We're much less attached because the funnel's full. So if someone is trying to push us around and maybe make us do some free consulting or whatever it might be, we're very comfortable to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe we're not a good fit. Maybe, maybe it'd be better if you work with someone else. Whereas if our funnel looks like a pencil, then we're desperate and our prospects consent sense that so we coach our clients it is a at least weekly if not a daily little bit of proactive prospecting proactive means we control whether or not we have a conversation with a prospect now that could mean that i am proactively going out and saying marcus you've been a client of mine for three months six months six years whatever how are we doing oh you guys are amazing hey, that's great. What is so amazing? Will you do this, 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 and this. Great. Who are two or three people in your network who might appreciate some of that as well? That's being proactive. Prospecting calls, social selling, all those sorts of things, but it's the consistency that is the really key thing to keeping that top of the funnel full. You prospect for choice.
0: If you have 12 opportunities for every deal that you need to bring over the line in order to hit your objectives. You can turn away eleven of them. The eleven of them can say no to you, and you're still going to hit your quota. But where most people go wrong is they aim for the bar rather than trying to get over it. And so I hear a lot about people saying, "Well, you know, it, it, it's crock uh, that you need three to five times as much in the funnel." And mm-hmm. I agree. Actually, what you need is three to five times more qualified opportunities. Yeah. So, when I'm defining the different stages of the funnel, you have a suspect, and that's basically anyone with a pulse who can still fog a mirror. Then you have a prospect. Now, most people will define my version of what a prospect is as basically a done deal, it's ready to go. Mm -hmm. I would put this in at 10% probability. Yeah. So they're in your target market, they have a problem that you can genuinely fix. You are dealing with a decision maker, and you are absolutely clear what outcomes they are trying to achieve, Yes, you're dealing with a decision maker who is willing willing and able Mm -hmm. to make the decision to invest the time, the money, the resources, allow you the access that you need to do your qualification, Mm -hmm. and they're working towards a clearly defined time frame for not only breaking ground on the project, but realizing the benefits uh, that they're paying for, the outcomes that they want. Because no one buys your product. They buy the outcome. Uh, And that goes in at a 10% weighting. Mm -hmm. A qualified prospect meets those five conditions, and they have answered at least 70% of the qualifying questions that we need to have answered. And that will go in at 30%. And then you have a closable prospect where all of those five criteria are met. They have answered 100% of the questions across the entire cast of characters. That goes in at 95. Mm -hmm. And there is no such thing as a 50-50 forecast. That's a weasel. (laughs) Um, So uh, again, I think one of the most important lessons I learned from my Sandler journey was the critical need uh, to concentrate on early disqualification and uh, the, the emphasis on advancement rather than continuation. So let, let's talk about that full f- uh, funnel freedom in the context
1: of that. It's funny you mentioned the whole, the, the percentages and, and and I will not disagree with you on the other percentages. I, I coach my clients to actually do away with the percentages because my experience is you get one salesperson who's wired like you where until they've got a check in their hand, it's not at 90, it's not anywhere beyond 10%. Whereas you get another salesperson who's like, Well, I met Marcus once at a networking event, and he said that maybe possibly someday he'd consider having a conversation with me 90% in my funnel. Like, well, that doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. So when we're looking at creating this full funnel freedom, we do need to understand the point you brought up of how many deals do we need to consistently have at the top of the funnel to hit our number at the bottom of the funnel? Oftentimes, that is, that is misconstrued. And all we're doing is looking at the bottom of the funnel, which means we're probably trying to pull a bunch of garbage through. This points to another major problem with management, which is, and CRM,
0: uh, because they beat the, their chest and pound the table, get out there, make more calls, prospect. The second, an opportunity, and by an opportunity, basically someone with a pulse, is put into the CRM. The next question that the CRM asks is uh, estimated close date. Yes. And so the emphasis moves from the top of the funnel to the bottom and misses yes. out that slightly important bit, the middle of the funnel, which yes. is why what you end up with, um, instead of a pencil, you end up with a pair of gr- uh, baggy old gray granny knickers with the elastic too stretchy at the top. It's yes. bulgy in the middle and then yes. it's taggy in the gusset. And what it yes. should look like is a thong. It needs to be wide at the top, and then they're decreasingly narrow. So bluntly, without wanting to offend too many people, all the good stuff is in the gusset. And because you've disqualified so hard, you've got a dozen opportunities going through at the bottom of the funnel. So any one of those is not only real, but you understand exactly where you are at any given moment. One other point, in terms of the difference between lag and leading indicators. Mm -hmm. I think this is really key because most managers don't know how to even identify the difference and have no idea. The SRC survey beginning of 2020 suggested that 94% of managers in sales were not qualified to do the job. So what what that does is it means that they end up focusing on pointless stuff like number of dials. Who cares? Number of first meetings, who cares? Number of proposals, who cares? Number of demos. So the four things that I always uh, encourage my team to focus on, daily, unique, effective conversations. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure they're speaking to five to seven a day. If they do it in seven dials, that's fine. The velocity, because otherwise, you end up with this constipation in the middle of the pipeline or the funnel. And the third is the number of qualified prospects moving to closable. Yeah. And the fourth one that I've realized re- um, in the last two years is really important, is the number of first meetings that move into a qualified second meeting.
1: Uh, yes.
0: If you focus just on first meetings, then the SDRs hammer any me- old meeting into the pipeline.
1: Right. Right. So your thoughts? You know, it's like Adam Carolla says, the way you know you had a good first date is you get a second date. Yeah. So... <laughs> One of the things that, that uh, to highlight what you're saying, and we're talking about a funnel, and now we're getting into the sales process, right? So the sales process is the what information do we need to gather to qualify, which means we're probably disqualifying because we're not able to gather that information. Our prospect is unwilling or unable to give it, or it doesn't exist. And then the, a, a selling system combine the, which is the how you go about getting that information. And the system drives the process. Together, they become a sales methodology. Uh, with a sales process, it's the boxes we have to check at every one of those stages. So, like you mentioned earlier, you know those five boxes we have to we have to check to qualify them to just a basic prospect, not even a qualified prospect, but just they're they're not a suspect. I was recently uh, talking to a, a CEO. And they've now become a client. We were we were doing uh, discovery. And I said, well, tell me about your sales process. And they said, well, it depends. And we I was sharing my screen. I was taking notes. And as they're responding, I write no sales process on the screen. And all of a sudden, they stopped and they said, so we don't have a sales process? And I said, yeah, but that's fixable. Do you want to keep talking? And they said, yes, we do. And now we're actually supporting them and building out a sales process, which is not handcuffs. A lot of people hear about oh we need these check boxes at every stage and oh my salespeople are going to think that's handcuffs. No, no, it's freedom. It allows us to focus. If I know that in this initial conversation I only need to check these five boxes with Marcus, awesome. That makes me more effective as a salesperson. Whether I'm an SDR, BDR, you know I'm doing the the initial conversation myself. It doesn't matter. I get to increase my effectiveness. And then from a leadership and a management perspective. I have an opportunity to coach, because if I'm not getting real data, and I'm not able to say, well, Hamish, did you check this fourth box here when you booked that conversation with Marcus, then I'm really just coaching off my gut, which says my tummy feels like you're not doing very well today. (laughs) Okay, so
0: let's look at a couple of other aspects as well. I want to explore what a good CRM setup looks like, because many organizations have invested in these technologies um, that are intended to help salespeople be more effective at selling and should underpin the sales process. However, more often than not, they're either too expensive or they just take the -the off-the-shelf version and they use it as a tool To audit the salespeople Mm -hmm. so that the finance function can say, Oh, we need to sell some more stuff. But that doesn't really help. Right. So let's spend a few minutes talking about what good CRM planning and structure looks like before we go into what good
1: CRM hygiene looks like. Absolutely. This is where we'll probably lose most of our audience uh, because they won't like what we're about to say. Nope. For me, and what I've seen very successful in our clients is. Number one, they get rid of percentages. They rename the stages. So when we build the sales process, we have stages named, and the generic one we use is, you know, first contact—the first time you've ever spoken with someone—that's more the aligned with the prospect that you uh, side you talked about. Discovery, which is where we're we're doing that qualification process. We get down to proposal presentation because at some point for a lot of our clients, they have to do some kind of proposal or presentation then we get into implementation. There is no closing stage. And then we get into ongoing client care, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Cause that's a really important part of creating full funnel freedom. That, great. that hour That hourglass more so, but then what they do is they relabel the stages. So there's no percentages, but then they make all of the qualification boxes, non-negotiable. So one of my clients customized their CRM. So if you were at a first contact stage, You couldn't actually move the opportunity down to discovery unless you checked all of the boxes. Now, of course, salespeople are going to lie. I've been in sales since I was 19. I've lied to my sales manager. I have no problem admitting that. But eventually, because we are looking at leading indicators, my sales manager is going to come to me and say, Hamish, I got a question for you. Your funnel's got a lot of stuff hanging out in the middle. What's going on there? Because you've said that you checked all these non-negotiable boxes, but how did you do that and get this bloat in the middle? And, and then I have to be like, well, you know, I actually didn't do it because I'm not comfortable. And now we have an inflection point of whether I'm coachable or whether I maybe need to go be more successful elsewhere. <laughs> well,
0: um, again, I, I have a couple of other things that I've found very helpful. Um I absolutely agree that you have gates through which the salesperson must uh, get through. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, also, if if they're not doing those things, you'll either see it bloat in the middle or you will see a lot of losses in the late stage. And we want our losses early. We Mm -hmm. don't want them late because the cost of pursuit, if you're in enterprise sales, even the first couple of contacts are going to cost you 10 or 20 grand. And you could easily rack up hundreds of thousands or even millions of pounds or dollars worth of uh, cost of pursuit. So early disqualification for the right reasons is really key. Another aspect which is really important to uh, look at is as stuff moves through the funnel, it creates opportunities for the manager to coach the salesperson. Because if you start to see patterns of behavior and that's another fundamentally vital part of uh, why you buy a CRM. It's to give you that visibility and to identify patterns of behavior and patterns within your team and within individual salesperson's selling style that are creating these problems. So it gives you visibility and it gives you foresight, more importantly, so that you don't have to wait till the end of the month or the quarter to discover that this thing has tanked. And you can get ahead of the problem. If we look at CRM hygiene, so often, salespeople do lie. And one of the other things that I found really powerful is to make sure that two people have to sign it off before it can move to the next stage. So you have the owner of the account and another salesperson. Now, then they may collaborate and collude, but chances are you'll find that out very quickly. But by doing that, you have a check and balance. And then they hold one another to account because I don't want you putting stuff forward if it's going to reflect poorly on me. Absolutely. Let's look at CRM hygiene. What does it actually mean?
1: Well, it, it means that, from from my perspective, that what is going in is is clean, right? The you know the garbage in, garbage out cliche is a cliche for a reason, and I can tell you from past experience before I got into Sandler, there was a lot of garbage going in, but there was no clear definition, and this goes back to that, that idea of building the processes, what goes into the CRM? When does it go in? What is the normal culture that we all use so that when I, as a leader, run a report, I can very quickly identify what opportunities I have, where are they, why are they at that stage? What are the daily qualified conversations that are happening with my team? And I can be reviewing those every Monday and every Friday with each of my team individually. And then when we get to the sales funnel review meeting, we can actually have a sales funnel review meeting instead of a storytelling session. We actually recommend to all of our clients that in a sales funnel review meeting, it should be no more than seven minutes per person to be able to do their 30, 60, 90 day pipeline review, because otherwise it becomes a storytelling session. And that's not what a sales funnel review meeting is all about. Uh,
0: I challenge that simply because I think having half a dozen people sat around a table, listen to everybody else, life from this work of fiction, also known as a forecast, is a waste of everyone's time. My preference is that you spend two, three minutes a day. What's new? What's mm-hmm. advanced? What hasn't that it should have? What are the mm-hmm. roadblocks? Where do you need help? That's the conversation between the manager and the individual salesperson. I fun- fundamentally believe that the sales meeting, uh, maybe once a month, you put everyone through the, uh, the torment of uh, the monthly ass kicking. Um, um, but what I want is that to be a learning exercise. Every meeting that yeah. the salespeople are in uh, should be one that they look forward to in the same way that you'd look forward to the next Bond movie. And yeah. when you come out, you should come out energized. Now, let's take a minute to talk about sales meetings. In terms of a great sales meeting, not a funnel review, what does a great
1: sales meeting look like? A great sales meeting, as you mentioned just a second ago, is a learning event. It's an opportunity for the whole team to celebrate and support and grow together with the manager as the leader. Sometimes the manager feels they need to step out of that But the manager is the one who needs to model the behavior that they expect so they can bring in opportunities that they've discovered in those one-on-one conversations that you mentioned for role play. And again, I'm a huge believer in role play. The hardest four inches to move in our life is from our brain to our mouth. And it's all well and good to stand in front of a sales team and say, thou shalt say this to a prospect or thou shalt ask this question. But we're all human beings, so we're all creatures of comfort. And you've got at least one salesperson in that room is like, that sounds great for the boss who's got years of experience, but I'm a junior and I I just can't ask that question. No, no, no. We can ask any question to anybody. We might need to soften it a little bit first or adjust it to make it sound like we didn't go to a sales training class and we have a shiny new toy to try out. But if the manager is not consistently role-playing with every one of their people every week, and especially in that group environment, there's no opportunity for growth. Or limit
0: it. I couldn't agree more. And one of the great refrains from crap salespeople is, "Oh, I don't like role play." Frankly, either like it or lump it. And are you familiar with the uh, acronym FIFO? Fit in or fuck off.
1: Ah, um, very di- different, different than the one I'm familiar with.
0: <laughs> role play is an essential part, and nothing comes close to being as difficult as the role play. Yeah. I have never once been in a situation in real life that came anywhere close to the kind of role plays that I run with my clients and my staff. And it's hard because in role play, the person playing the buyer normally brings the six to 12 worst prospects they've ever had and roll them all into one. So it's never anywhere near as hard in the real life. And what this does is it conditions you. It's drill. The military don't uh, do live fire training for the good of their health. They do yeah. it. So soldiers run towards the sound of gunfire, not away from it. And yeah. salespeople need to be drilled into learning that stuff so that they're not afraid and their
1: amygdala doesn't fire off and they oh. don't go into freeze flight or fight. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I was having this conversation yesterday with someone in my network. I'm training for my second level black belt in Muay Thai and Thai boxing. And I'm only a danger to myself, but I am at the point where I'm, I'm working with the fighters in our gym, and I'm not a fighter, but I'm at the level where I I can support them. And when I go to the, the the fight cards that we put on, and they're walking into the ring, they're spending hundreds of hours in the gym in all sorts of conditions to spend maybe nine minutes in the ring total. And as a salesperson, we can't spend 15 minutes role playing what happened, what should we say or do when someone says. Yeah, how about you just send me a proposal and I'll get back to you? Makes no sense to me. It
0: doesn't. And the, the other aspect, which I think if managers do role play, where they then fall down is they don't do the post-call debrief. And that is so important because this is where you can capture the lessons. You can identify what was missed, what questions mm-hmm. they still need to go back and answer. But also you can role play how they could have done it differently. So when they face the same situation again the next time, then they're prepared. And I can't tell you how much money I've made my clients or helped make my clients by post-call debriefing and then helping them go back after they've blown it. What that does, it reduces your prospecting tariff. If you get really systematic at generating referrals, referrals, cold calls close in theory, one in 20 of the sales cycles you begin, whereas referrals close one in six. And they spend two and a half times as much, typically, on the first order than a cold prospect. They buy three times as frequently, and they refer four times as often. So if you're not systematizing your referral process, frankly, you're out of your mind. You need to learn how to sell past no. 80% of my income for the last 17 years has come after someone has said no to me. So I've instinctively learned to encourage people to say no early because Mm -hmm. what that means is I have one-fifth of the prospecting requirement that anybody else does because I hate prospecting. Mm -hmm. I'm good at it, but I hate it with a burning passion.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And I would much rather spend my time with real prospects, and I would much rather
1: spend my time helping my clients succeed than beating the phone and dialing for dollars. Absolutely. You make a good point, and that's where we get into that client retention side where once we have closed the deal now, the instinct for a lot of salespeople, and I will include myself in this, even to this day is to oversell. We, we get so super pumped and excited about the thing, all the things that we've got. We don't just focus on the thing that our client actually needs and or wants right now. And the cliche about, you know, it's easier to sell stuff to people who are already buying from you is a cliche for a reason. So we are, very strong and encouraging our clients to really turn their funnel into an hourglass. So once we get our our, our client down to that client care stage, and again, whoever is doing the client care, whether it is the, the, the person who had the initial conversation and they're managing the whole process, or there's a customer success department, doesn't matter who it is. Now we get into that land and expand. And now we can have a system for doing consistent quarterly reviews, which we book, by the way, the day that we sign our agreement, because that's the day that our client loves us the most, because we haven't had a chance to screw up. Then we can also- And you mandate that. It's it's non-negotiable. It is non-negotiable. And we actually had a client, a software client of ours, lose a very large account because they didn't do that. So the door was closed to the decision maker. And because really, none of us want to talk to salespeople. And even if the decision maker gets involved in a large sale, like a software platform or something like that, the minute they can feel like their involvement is over, they're going to say, "Go talk to my user, the user group. They're, they're not going to want to engage. So what we have to do is stand firm and say, it is our best practice to sit down every ninety days or every sixty days, we can, you know, sixty or ninety, maximum ninety, and review how we're doing because we want to address problems when they're at ten percent instead of when they're at 90%. Because for all of us, once a problem gets to 90%, we've already made a decision. And in fact, one of my team members, who was a CEO of a, of a, of an, a, of a group here in Calgary, they actually had one of my clients, and now one of our clients, do this to them. They were switching uh, IT providers. And the IT provider who had been trained by me said to my now team member, best practice every 90 days, we do a 15 minute phone call with you directly to review how things are going. And my now team member said, no, no, no. You can just talk to my general manager. It's fine. My client said, Hey, that's totally understand where you're coming from. Out of curiosity, why are you switching to us? And my now team member said, Oh, it's because I keep getting dragged into all these problem meetings where things are on fire. And, and my client said, "Yeah." That 15-minute call is to avoid having to pull you into those conversations. And my now team member's like, sign me up. (laughs) Well, I think
0: the other aspect, which is really important, is the interim touches. One of the things I love doing are the recon conversations. And that allows you, because particularly in enterprise, even for a small business of under 200 people, you've got three Mm -hmm. to four decision makers nowadays. In enterprise, prior to COVID, there were six to seven. Mm -hmm. It's now 11 decision makers in an enterprise sale. Now, if you are not constantly engaging with those people, their Mm -hmm. circumstances change. Have you read Bob Mester's book, Demand Side Sales? I haven't yet, but it's now on my list. It's fabulous. M-O-E-S-T-A, Bob Mester. Bob was W. Edward Deming's apprentice when he was Mm -hmm. in his 20s. He's an engineer with 5,000 products to his name. Wow. And he had to learn how to sell. He's got, the, I think, the freshest opinions and outlook on sales that I've uh, come across anywhere. Fantastic guest on the podcast. And he makes the point that people do not buy your product or service. They rent it. And they Mm. rent it only for so long as it's delivering the outcomes that they want and need. Now- If you look at his model, when people have a problem, they make space for an idea for an alternative. And then they start looking passively. They trip up over the odd article. They see a post, and they read it, and they get a little bit curious. And as the problem builds, they start to actively look. And once they actively look, then they start compiling a comparison between all the different providers. And then what they do is they start paring away the stuff they don't need. And what's left is what the, uh, it remains because they've disqualified all the other solutions. Um, and then they start to use it. When they start to use it, if the experience isn't delivering the outcome that they wanted, they drop it. If it is, then it becomes habit. And to build on what Hamish was saying earlier on, the real value, I think, for every organization, unless you're selling something that's a transaction and it's one-offs, should be, how do we maximize utilization? How do we maximize adoption? How do we make sure that they renew? How do we make sure that we expand into their marketplace, the ecosystem in which they operate? And Brian Sullivan taught us both that it's not just the organic growth of selling something uh, similar but different or extending Mm -hmm. the existing project. It's looking at their joint ventures and their partners. Um, And I've added supply chain to that. Because who the hell wants to lose a critical supplier? If right. you're selling uh, IT security, then why not ask for a referral to the three or five most important suppliers that they don't want being hacked? Because it's going to cause them untold problems. Look at their sister companies, parent companies, subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. Look at the alumni. And above all, look at the customer's customer. All of those represent a God-given opportunity that most salespeople miss. And this is why you need good CRM, you need mm-hmm. good planning, you need mm-hmm. to understand your market, and you need to understand your customers, and you have to uh, mm-hmm. stay close to them. Um, because you can't, through uh, unless you're having those regular conversations, mm-hmm. get those referrals. Um, right. And Recon, and do, do you want to tell people what Recon means?
1: Sure, thank you for the opportunity. So uh, Recon starts off with, recall uh also remember right so marcus do you recall why you started working with us or why you chose to switch to us from competitor uh reason 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 well evaluate us on a scale of one to ten how are we doing and you know six or less stop talking and figure out what's wrong especially if this is very early on in the in the relationship because if we've been working together you know it's the first 90 days and i'm six or less there's a big fire that i need to address and i'm i'm possibly losing you as a client. Seven or eight becomes less than six very quickly because they're just too polite to say that you're less than a six. Nine or 10, you keep going. Marcus, you know, what What's what? positive changes have you seen in your organization since we started working together? And while this is great, this is great, this is great. This is, by the way, where I also add changes for our, from our organization. This is where we can open up some of the opportunities to sell more. Right? Hey, Marcus, we've had some changes in our business since we started working together, weren't relevant to talk about when we first started talking, but they might be relevant now. May I share them with you? You probably right. Nice. yes. You know, Marcus, given given the, the changes that we've had in our business and what's going on in your business, say that over the next six, nine, 12, 18 months, where are some additional opportunities where we might be able to support you and, and your team? Oh, well, you know, there's this and this and this and this and this. Marcus, I appreciate you telling me all that. You know, this is not a sales call. This is, a, this is a check-in call. Make sure that we are delivering what you thought you were going to be getting from us. What do you see as the next steps in exploring those opportunities that you just mentioned? Who do we need to get involved? Let's get some dates in the calendar so those don't end up falling off of our desk.
0: Absolutely. And so recon with key stakeholders, users, influencers, recommenders, even detractors. Mm-hmm. And I recently interviewed Karen Mangia and uh, Matt Sweezy from Salesforce. Their research on what you need to do in order to really deliver uh, customer success is very interesting. And one of the things that came out of their research is speaking to people who are pissed off with you, who mm-hmm. fired you, increases your product development cycle by sixfold wow. the speed. 600% improvement in product uh, mm-hmm. evolution. Now, why would you not speak to those people? And that's why they evaluate. Question is really important. Find out people who are not happy because they will tell you precisely how you need to Mm -hmm. adapt either your product or your service, your delivery, your communication, uh, the frequency of touch, um, your transparency. They will tell you exactly what you need to do. And the other thing that was uh, really interesting out of that is how important employee experience is Mm -hmm. on delivering the customer outcomes. And this brings us full circle. If your salespeople have the tools and resources, the training, if the culture of the sales organization is one that elevates them, uh, gives them a voice, allows them to push back and challenge, get the help and support they need, the training, the coaching, then the customers will receive a better service and that then results in higher retention rates. And under COVID, If you are not really focused on customer retention, you're toast. And the the reality is that this is going to go on for another 12 to 18 months at least. Mm -hmm. They're rolling out the vaccine, but let's face it, our health ministers are not the brightest lights in the house. And their ability to mess stuff up is legend. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but if you're in the US or the UK, you should live in trepidation. The idea that these people are responsible for actually rolling this vaccine out. (laughs) How long before the virus mutates? We don't know what's likely to be going on. So the chances are you're in this difficult situation for another 12 to 18 months and you literally have to adapt or die. And retention has to be the number one focus. Attention and maximizing your expansion within that marketplace that we talked about in terms of the supply chain, the customer's customer, and so on. So tell me this, you've got a brand new mid-market client Mm -hmm. that has managed to grow largely by luck than judgment. They've managed to build up a customer base, Mm -hmm. but they've got a sales team that's a mishmash. They have an over uh, reliance on one or two major clients. This looks familiar by Hamish's response. What's the first challenge that you think they need to
1: address? Great question, and, and the phrase that that uh, that I use with my clients is "success by default" instead of by design. They've kind of failed their way to where they've got to. Um, I like I like your phrase. <laughs> um, the number one thing that. I would encourage the leader to do is, is define their sales process, define their what information do they need to gather in order to successfully disqualify someone who comes to them or someone who their salespeople talk to. Because my belief, and I'd have to go look at their specific data, but my belief is they've probably got a funnel that maybe looks like the knickers you talked about a little bit earlier. And their salespeople are significantly less effective and productive as they could be. The leader is probably burning way too many calories being brought in as a, as the fire chief, while they're also being the lead arsonist and that there is, they have no common language. So every time they talk to one of their salespeople, they have to remember, okay, so Marcus doesn't put something in the bottom of the funnel until he's got a check in his hand, but Hamish put something in the bottom of the funnel because he had a nice conversation once at a networking event, and he's burning weight, and they are burning way too many calories on that. So that's where my, where I would start. Okay. Let me ask you about marketing and sales
0: technologies, because I have a real bee in my bonnet about this. I see organizations developing this technology spaghetti, and mm. they've got Salesforce and Marketo, and they've got Outreach, mm. and they've got sales laughed, and they got all of this stuff. But what what I've seen is this sacrifice of effectiveness for efficiency. And so many organizations have these basically overlapping subscriptions in many cases, because the functionality is shared amongst many of them. They overemphasize things like automation, and they dehumanize the sales process. Marketing isn't speaking to actual customers. The product developers are not speaking to
1: actual customers. So your thoughts on this? Uh, Yeah, see something very similar. And and this kind of goes to, for entrepreneurs, they tend to fall on the marketer-engineer spectrum, right? The marketing side will love to talk about what they're building. They're not building anything, but they're going to talk about it. The engineer side, they don't want to talk to anybody. They just want to build stuff. And, And entrepreneurs fall on this spectrum, depending on where they're at. And no matter where they're at, they believe in the number. And that's where the, the efficiency comes in. Oh, look at my team is making however many more dials, or they're having all irrelevant, as we've already, as we've already discussed. And for right now, at least, we're still selling to human beings. No matter what we're selling, we're still selling to human beings. And we we want our human-to-human interactions to be that much more effective. And for a lot of these tools, and that's what they are, they're tools. And it's like a lot of training. A lot of training says, hey, Marcus, here's a selection of hammers. Please pick up the hammer that fits best in your hand and go bash it into a bunch of things. And eventually you're going to find one that is a nail, and you'll hit that nail in and you'll go, it works. And unfortunately, (laughs) you don't look back at all the other nails that are bent and misshapen because you've got that one. And what I would much rather do is, get our organizations, our clients to the point where they have a sales engine that is a bunch of Lego. It's a bunch of interchangeable plastic blocks that is entirely focused on the customer, on the prospect. Something that we've talked around because you and I believe in it to our core, but I feel we need to make it explicit for the audience is things like recon, we make it about the client. This is not me saying, hey, Marcus, I'm going to call you every couple of weeks and spend 15 minutes doing recon with you. Because that's about me. Because Marcus yeah. is like, I don't want to talk to a sales guy. But it's if like I that... Exactly. Bant is the selfish disqualification process, uh, qualification. 100%. 100%. So if I instead flip that conversation, say, Marcus, we check in with our clients, every one of our, our, our clients, every two weeks, it's a 15 minute or less phone call to make sure that we are delivering what you think we should be delivering. And if we're not, You have an opportunity to tell me that, so I can fix it before. So you are actually getting the value. How do you feel about that? To date, zero people have ever said no. I'm sure someone will eventually. Well, one of the things that I'm
0: excited about, and there there is a technology that I've come across, and in fact, uh, I'm now working with them. Is this company called White Rabbit? It's really fascinating because what they can do is they can take your database of let's say 10,000 records and identify um, with real precision which of the 273 that you should be talking to uh, because they are ones that you are most likely to engage with and which of your salespeople should speak to the individual within that company uh, because they are most likely to have the best engagement. And what I'm really excited, yeah, tell me about it. What I'm really excited about Uh, They they had a a roofing client who came to them. And it was the usual shit where they said, we want to speak to more decision makers, help us. So they ran the AI. And what they found was that what they needed to do is target buildings that were built between Mm -hmm. 1970 and 1990 out of concrete and steel. And they were on a north-south road with an east-facing front door. Within one quarter, sales went up 40%. Now, all they need to be able to do this is 50 wins and 50 losses. Now, a win actually is an advancement. It's not even a close. So this is something that you can get. I mean, this is the technology that is out there. But when you think about that, what that does is it can reduce your prospecting tariff by 90%. Yeah, Because you don't waste your time on deadbeat sales cycles. It can halve the sales cycle length. It can also make sure that instead of speaking to the one salesperson owning an account, you now have a team selling approach. So the right salesperson speaks to the right person on the prospect side. Now, what I'm mm-hmm. amazed by, I mean, this is right at the bleeding edge, but the technology is starting to evolve so cleverly, and, and it hopefully, we will get away from this brute force type of marketing and sales, that's technology that's out there. Um, and it'll give us precision. Because if you only have to speak to 273 companies yeah. and the 11 people in them, instead of 110,000 people, that significantly reduces the amount of effort. It reduces your cost. But it also gives you predictability.
1: Absolutely. What an, that's, a, that's absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah, it's stunning stuff. I'm I'm really excited and looking forward to see where they go. And they've just landed one of the biggest US insurers and they've taken it on for 15,000 agents. Um, It started out with one agent and it's got, and this is another example of how you go in and then you uh, land and expand uh, from one person to 15,000. Stunning stuff.
1: Amazing.
0: Hamish, help me here, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise your idiot 23 year old self what advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored um having been selling for 4 years by then
1: <laughs> number one it's it's not about you it's about them and adapt to their communication style i'm a fairly direct communicator i think that's uh, obvious to the audience mm-hmm. and that's where i actually started adding that little caveat to my my opener with my prospects of, I'm not looking for you to answer in a specific way, because I started to get the feeling that my prospects were like, oh, well, which direction does you want to go down? So really pull back the things that might make me feel intimidating to people and and, and adapt to their style, and I'll probably gather more information. And it's great advice. Um, so, Miss, what books would you recommend people read? So I read an amazing book by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made. So I'm a neuroscience nerd. I've been a, I have a model of a human brain in my training center. I've been reading books on neuroscience uh, all the way back to when I was my idiot 23 year old self. And this this one completely deconstructs a lot of the beliefs that we have around. You know, the amygdala controls these things, and this part of the brain controls that things. It's actually not the case. So I'd highly recommend that book because we are still selling to human beings and to understand their emotions would be uh, would be fabulous. Another book that I read that was hugely impactful uh, over my summer holidays was called The Buddha and the Badass by Vishen Lankani. Okay. Awesome, awesome book. I ended up discovering what my actual foundational values were and ended up building out 25-year visions for both myself and my business after reading that. So those would be the two, top two on my list. Oh, and the other one that I just finished was called "The Diamond in Your Pocket" by Ganaji, and it was recommended to me by uh, by one of my friends. And given the time of year that we've been through the and the lockdown, "The Diamond in Your Pocket" talks a lot, a lot about the power of stopping, which is sometimes a, what we need to do to actually address the things that we're going through. Excellent. Hey, Miss. Thank you. How can people get hold of you? You know there aren't very many Hamish's out there. As far as I know, I'm still the only Hamish Knox on Amazon, but that's not a good way to contact me. LinkedIn is probably the best. I'm very easy to find, so I'm Hamish Knox on LinkedIn, also on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Sandler in YYC, and uh, we've got a, a really robust Instagram going where we post a lot of uh, informational content for our followers. So Sandler in YYC on Instagram or Hamish Knox on LinkedIn. Very happy to connect. Please do say that you heard me on Marcus's podcast because if I get the, hey, I'd like to add you to my network, I'm probably going to ignore you. Excellent. So,
0: hey, Ms. Knox, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, practical, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do go to Apple Podcasts and give me a review. And I'm perfectly happy with a one-star to a five-star just want it to be honest and heartfelt. And if you want to get a hold of me, contact me at marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me via LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone else who would be, then please do get in touch and connect us. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.